Our scripture for today comes from Joshua 5, verses 9 through 12. Let us listen to God's word. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt. And so that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the Israelites were camped in Gilgal, they kept the Passover in the evening, on the 14th day of the month in the plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day they ate the produce of the land. And the Israelites no longer had manna. They ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. Passover is a meal built around a holiday. It celebrates how God freed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. You may remember the book of Exodus, how Israel was in slavery there, put to work and persecuted. But God heard their cries, so he sent Moses to bring them out. But as you well know, the king of Egypt, called Pharaoh, refuses to let his people go. So, God begins to send plagues upon Egypt. He turns the Nile River to blood. He sends a swarm of locusts. But again and again, Pharaoh is too proud to let the Israelites go. His people are struck by boils. The entire country descends into darkness. But still, he won't let them go until, until God sends a final plague. An angel will descend upon Egypt and kill every firstborn son. But those who believe in God, they will mark their frames of the door with sheep's blood, and the angel will pass them by. So they do. The Israelites mark each door frame with sheep's blood, and the angel passes over them, which is where the name pass over comes from. But every firstborn son in Egypt is left dead because of Pharaoh's pride. The next day, all of Egypt and Pharaoh himself beg the Israelites to leave, so they leave in a hurry. They gather their things and they race out of Egypt. And as they're celebrating their escape, they come to the Red Sea, stretching out in front of them. It is uncrossable. And suddenly behind them is Pharaoh's entire army. Grief has turned to rage and revenge is on the mind. The people of Israel panic. Their escape is about to turn into a slaughter. But Moses, he cries out to God for protection and he holds out his staff and God parts the waters of the Red Sea in front of them. The people of Israel run into the breach. Pharaoh's soldiers and chariots chasing after them. As the distance shrinks between Pharaoh's soldiers and the Israelites, the Israelites begin to get worried. But then finally, the last Israelite exits the other side of the sea, and the waters come pouring back in, wiping out Pharaoh and his army. Israel is now free, free of Egypt, standing alone in the middle of a desert, with God's promise to take care of them and Moses to lead them. This is the story of Israel's exit from Egypt. But after this exit, Israel will wander in the desert for 40 years. God is taking them to this promised land, a land where they will live in safety and prosperity. 
Because, and this is important, God does not lead people into the desert to leave them there. God doesn't lead us into the desert to leave us there. God brings people to the desert because they're headed somewhere, maybe 40 years later, but headed somewhere. And these Israelites are headed to the promised land, a land of abundance. And then our scripture text for this morning is on the borders of the promised land. The people of Israel have been wandering the desert for 40 years. An entire generation has been born in the desert. An older generation has passed away. Many who were alive to see God's mighty acts in Egypt have died. Which means that those who are left have never lived in the midst of a foreign people. They've fought foreign peoples. They've seen them from afar and fought them in battle, but they've never lived with them. Which means they've also never really been tempted by them. Since that first generation died, this second generation has had no idea what they've been missing. For them, the desert is the only home they've ever known. Manna is the only food they've regularly had. So when they get to the promised land, they will have no idea what hit them. They could ask William Post III, who won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery in 1988. Five years after he won the lottery, he told a reporter, everybody dreams of winning money, but nobody realizes the nightmare that comes out of the woodwork or the problems. The week before winning the lottery, William Post had $2.46 in his bank account. He pawned a ring for $40 and used it to purchase 40 lottery tickets, one of which was the winner. In the two weeks after winning the lottery and receiving his first of 26 annual payments of $497,953.47, William Post acquired a lease on a Florida restaurant for his brother and sister, a used car lot and its fleet for another brother, and he bought a twin-engine plane, although he didn't have a pilot's license. Within three months, he was $500,000 in debt. A year later, now estranged from his siblings, he bought a mansion and set about upgrading this mansion. But then his former landlady sued him for a portion of the winnings, claiming they had agreed to split any winnings that he received. He was now mortgaged to the hilt, so when the judge ordered his lottery payments frozen until the matter was resolved, he was strapped for cash and had to start selling off his stuff. Visitors to his crumbling mansion would have seen plywood-covered windows, missing shower stalls, a swimming pool filled with debris, an old car on blocks in the weedy yard, and a malfunctioning security system that chirped six times every 60 seconds. He finally decided to auction off the remaining monies, trying anything he could to get out of debt, He told a reporter, once I'm no longer a lottery winner, people will leave me alone. That's all I want, just peace of mind. After being arrested for assault, he had fired a shotgun over the head of a debt collector. And after receiving several months in jail, he returned to normal life. 
living on a $450 per month disability check. Mr. William Post had won the lottery, and it ruined his life. God knows that Israel is about to win the lottery. They're about to leave the desert and for the first time feast on something besides manna. About to meet people who don't believe in their God. About to be powerful. They are about to face temptation in a way that they never have before. Power, land, good food. And God knows that the promised land could ruin their lives. Because here's the point, getting good things, if you aren't grounded in who you are, will ruin your life. Mr. William Post, after a decade of being a lottery winner, tried to auction off his winnings because they were ruining his life. He ceased to be a brother and became a bank. He thought the reason he hadn't been happy is he didn't have a big enough house or enough cars and boats. In the face of everything he could buy with that money, he lost sight of who he was. Israel is liable to do the same thing. They are liable to depend on that good food and power and comfortable living to make them happy. They are liable to get fixated in on all these new and good things and forget who they are. Which is only a problem because getting good things, if you don't know who you are, will ruin your life. God knows this. God wants to give us good gifts because he loves us. He wants to lead his people into the promised land so they can taste good food, so they can grow strong, so the nations can see their wisdom and learn from them. But God knows that the temptation of these good things will be hard. So before they feast before they get to rejoice in this beautiful promised land, God makes them stop. He makes them stop, and he grounds them in something else. First, in the text before we read today, Joshua has to circumcise all the male Israelites. Why? Because this is a sign of being God's people, and it will remain a sign until after Jesus. But the second thing that the people do is they celebrate the Passover, this meal as a remembrance of what God did for Israel in Egypt. This meal begins with a blessing that proclaims the holiness of the holiday. Then a cup of wine is poured wine as a symbol of joy and happiness. And there is bread called matzah, unleavened bread, which is to remember how Israel left Egypt without even having time to let their bread rise. All of this meal is done while reclining. Reclining while eating was a luxury afforded only to the free. Slaves could not recline. Then the middle of the loaf of the matzah bread is broken in two, which recalls God's splitting of the Red Sea to let Israel cross on dry land. Every part of the meal is symbolic of how God saved them. At this point in the meal, it's tradition for someone to ask, Why is this night different from all other nights? In other words, why are we eating in this really weird way? And the response is a telling of the exodus from Egypt, a review of the history, a description of the suffering imposed on the Israelites, a listing of the plagues that visited the Egyptians. 
and finally the miracles that God performed to bring them out. This holiday is more than a feast. It's more than a history lesson. It's a meal that allows the Israelites to take ownership of who they are. In this passage, the Israelites sit in Jericho, a land that they have just conquered. And the first thing they do is share the Passover meal. In the middle of a foreign land, they take time to remember who it was that saved them. Israel knows where the promised land is now. They're in it. They can see it and taste it. They don't need God anymore to get there. But this Passover meal reminds them they they will continue to receive their blessings from God and not from anyone else. God wants to give Israel good things. He has led them to a land that will be theirs. He's going to protect them and make their crops grow and their animals plentiful. He's going to help them be powerful and wise. God wants to give them good things. But he knows that getting good things, if you don't know who you are, will ruin your life. So he reminds them through the Passover meal. God wants to give us good things, too. He wants to give us gifts, healthy families, fulfilling careers, homes we are proud of and comfortable in. God is our Father in heaven, and he wants to bless us. But he knows that good things, if we're not careful, can ruin our lives. So he wants to remind us who we are. That's part of why we celebrate communion at all, to remember who we are. We have our own meal that reminds us of our salvation, but no longer just a salvation from Egypt, a salvation from sin and death. We were once slaves to sin, but God brought us out. He died for our sins and is working to lead us to the promised land. And it doesn't matter how impressive the job, how beautiful the home, how perfect the family. Those things lead us back into our sins. They just might ruin our lives. If that perfect job and the nice salary leaves you greedy, it won't matter how big that paycheck gets. It will never be enough. You can ask William Post about his $16.2 million. If pursuing a beautiful home leaves you always envying what other people have, it will never feel like a home. If that perfect family makes you prideful, every imperfection will become a personal insult. But if you know who you are, that you are God's, That job can be a blessing to you. That income can be a blessing to your family, to those around you in need of help. It can help fill your life with meaning. If you know who you are, that you are God's, that beautiful home can be a blessing. It can be a space to meet, to laugh, to eat food, relax. It can be a refuge for you and your family, for friends and for strangers. And that family of yours imperfect in all their glory. If you know who you are, that you are God's, you can love them through their mistakes, help them pursue God's plan for their lives, and even your imperfections become a testimony to your family's faithfulness. 
Good things, if you don't know who you are, can ruin your life. Because the things we have aren't ours to begin with. Our families, our spouses, our homes, and everything else belong to God first. That's why we don't do communion once. We need to be constantly reminded of who saved us, constantly reminded that these good things belong to God. I was once on a 16-hour road trip from New Jersey to Alabama with my father. We were driving back from Princeton, and when we stopped to buy gas on our way to the interstate, my dad did something I've never seen him do before. He bought two lottery tickets, one for me and one for him. And off we went. For the next 16 hours, we talked about the ethics, morality, and theology of buying a lottery ticket. My father's a pastor, so that makes sense. Is it worth it? Would the money change you? If you had the money, would you be doing something else or doing exactly what you're doing? We had just bought a lottery ticket to the promised land. And as we spent 16 hours talking about the possibility of getting there, we got nervous about what it could do to our family and our hearts and excited about the opportunities it could open up. The promised land could ruin you. That is not an exaggeration. It's the truth. So take the time to wander the desert for a while. Take the time to have a 16-hour conversation and make sure you know who you are. You see, the manna, that tasteless manna that the Israelites ate, was given to them by God. And those crops in Canaan, the beautiful, rich crops that they ate, were also given to them by God. They were reminded of who they were. They are God's. We are God's too. And we are meant to live like him. Coming back to this table again and again and again and again to remember who saves us. Only then will we be able to taste of the fruit of the promised land. Until then, well, get used to manna. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we can see that all good gifts come from you. Lord, even the gifts that sometimes we don't realize are gifts come from you. We pray that you would set our hearts right, that we might see you in our lives, and that we might act in ways that bring you glory. Remind us, Lord, ultimately, that above all, we are yours. You chose us, and we are your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.